Please do sit down. Now let me encourage you, if, uh, if you will, to uh, turn back in your Bibles to Malachi uh, chapter 3, page 962, uh, the reading that uh, Anthony read for us a little bit earlier. And uh, while you're finding that, let me apologise that we don't have a handout this week. Um, I was a bit late getting my handout to the uh, office, and uh, the office were going to get it out for me, but unfortunately the photocopier blew up, well, almost. Well, I know it did. I mean, it was on fire. Uh, there was smoke coming out anyway, so that was all very... I was going to say exciting. It was exciting for me. I wasn't in the office. It wasn't exciting for the people in the office, was it? Uh, Anyway, sorry, no handout. That's why. Uh, My fault for being late in the first place. But I didn't make the thing blow up. Sir John William Lang was a British entrepreneur in the construction industry in the 20th century. Many of you will have heard of him. When he died in 1978, his company was worth millions. Yet at his death, John Lang's personal possessions were valued at just... £371. John Lang was a a committed Christian man and his commitment to Christ shaped his business practices and his approach to wealth. He pioneered ideas that were virtually unheard of in the construction industry in the early part of the 20th century. I think it was in the 30s, for example, that he gave his staff paid holidays and annual outings, something that we're used to but certainly wasn't the norm then. These were perks that cost the company but he wanted to care for his workforce, many of whom were were unskilled labourers. John Lang was a giver. He gave to his employees, he he gave his own money away. In 1940, he was giving away £20,000 each year. In 1940, £20,000 each year, an amount many times greater than his own income. He was a giver. And as he gave, he was blessed. Now, it is that attitude to wealth that we'll be encouraged to... Uh, follow as we turn to Malachi chapter 3 verses 7 to 12. It's uh, six, uh, week 6 of our seven week tour of ancient Israel around 400 BC and this week we're off to the, the countryside passing through the hills surrounding Jerusalem and visiting the fields of Israel to see the crops and vineyards. Now as I mention the vineyards I must warn those of you who are partial to a bottle of the local wine I'm afraid there'll be no wine tasting on this week's excursion because it's been a disastrous year for the harvest. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. You'll see that pests have devoured the crops and vines have cast their fruit. These are hard times for God's people. Austerity measures have kicked in. The government have been forced to consider a comprehensive spending review and the feeling right across the land is that the whole nation has been blighted. What actually is going on is even worse than they might have realised. Look at verse 9, where we discover in this prophecy that the whole nation is under a curse. These are hard times for God's people, but the word curse tells us that, believe it or not, they brought it on themselves. Look back back at verse 7, where our section begins, and if I did have a, a handout, I'd be encouraging you to look at the first point, which says the statement. Verse 7, Ever since the time of your forefathers, You've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. It's a statement from the Lord to his people. I remember sitting down with a Christian couple a good many years ago now when when I was part of a different church. You won't know this couple. As we chatted, they they poured out their hearts to me, hearts that had been broken by their youngest son. He got involved with the wrong crowd, started to take drugs, turned to crime to fund his habit. He'd fathered children with two different girls and had been thoroughly obnoxious towards this dear Christian couple. 
Over the years, they'd they'd tried to stand by him. They'd attempted to walk that fine line of being there for him without condoning his lifestyle. On numerous occasions, they'd welcomed him back home to show that they loved him and to try and help him get clean. But again and again, he let them down. He'd stolen from them while he was living at home. He'd lied to them. He'd been aggressive towards them. And as they told me their story, with tears rolling down their cheeks, I asked them, when did this all start? And they looked at each other and the husband said to me, you know, for the life of me I can't remember. It's been going on so long now, I can't recall a time when he wasn't like this. Now that is something of what the Lord is saying in verse 7 about his people in Malachi's day. Verse 7, ever since the time of your forefathers you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Their disobedience has been going on so long. Those of you who have been here over these last weeks have seen the extent of their uh, rebelliousness. Now remember in chapter 1 we saw how they they showed their contempt for the Lord by bringing blind, crippled, diseased animals to the temple for sacrifice. They weren't interested in giving God the best. In the first half of chapter 2 we saw how the priests showed their contempt for the Lord by being partial in their teaching. They had the Bible but never mind that God had spoken. They'd just choose the bits they wanted to teach. In the second half of chapter 2, we saw how the people were being unfaithful in their marriages, finding another woman, marrying women of other faiths, divorcing their wives, the wives of their youth. Last week, we heard the outrageous things they were saying about God, how here were God's people making slanderous accusations about the Lord, suggesting that he was pleased with evil people. We've seen just in the book of Malachi the scope of their disobedience. And in verse 7, the Lord says that has been the case throughout the history of Israel. Do you see it there, verse 7? Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees. And so, verse 9, they were under a curse. Now, we may not be used to this language of curse, but but it's Bible language and it runs right through the Scriptures. Uh, It's used in different ways in the Scriptures, uh, but we've seen this curse language already in Malachi, chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 2, and now here, chapter 3, verse 9. And to understand this particular curse language, we need to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy. So you might like to uh, put your service order in Malachi and come back with me to Deuteronomy, page 206. Page 206, and it's uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, page 206. Now, you'll see if you look at the NIV headings, and the NIV headings aren't always helpful, but I think on this occasion they are. Uh, You'll see it says, Blessings for obedience, above chapter 28, and curses for obedience, just before verse 15. Now, this is a, a chapter all about blessings and curses. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. It's very simple what he's saying there. Obey me, says the Lord, and you'll know my blessing. And then in the next 14 verses we read of a list of all the blessings they'll enjoy if they're obedient to the Lord. And significantly significantly for us this evening, uh, just look at verse 4. It says, the crops of your land will be blessed. Obey the Lord and you'll know the blessing of a fruitful land. But this chapter also tells us the result of disobeying the Lord. 
verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these, there's our word, curses will come upon you and overtake you. The language of curse. And crucially for us this evening, if you turn over the page and look at verses 38 and 39, you'll see why this is particularly, particularly important for us when we look at Malachi. Look at 28, verse, 30, verse 38. Chapter 28, verse 38. This is one of the curses. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You see there, locusts devouring the crops, vineyards with no grapes, it's the result of disobeying the Lord. And as you come back with me to Malachi chapter 3, page 962, and again look at chapter 3 and verse 11, you'll see that is exactly what has happened. Pests have devoured their crops, and the vines in the fields have cast their fruit, and this is all under the banner of the curse of God. He's already said, you were being cursed. And so do you see, these economically hard times had come upon the people of God because they disobeyed the Lord. His curse was upon them. And so actually in verse 11 he is saying, begin to obey me and I'll bless you. The opposite, you see, you'll get the blessing rather than the curse. Verse 11, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed rather than cursed, for yours will be a delightful land. That's the promise then if they obeyed the Lord. But as the Lord spoke to them here, their persistent disobedience in many different ways and for many, many years had finally come home to roost. And with that in mind, the Lord's word in verse 7 is quite remarkable. And it also says so much about our God. Verse 7, Ever since the time of your forefathers you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that amazing? Return to me. Amazingly, he will have them back. His arms are open wide. Again and again they've been against him, and he says, return to me. And we've seen it again and again throughout this little book, haven't we? At times, it's not been easy to hear the message of the book of Malachi, but underlying it all, we can't have missed how gracious and kind and compassionate and forgiving and loving our God is, how patient he is with his people. Here he is again saying to a thoroughly disobedient people, return to me and I will return to you. Not, I'm going to make you pay for this. Not, you're beyond the pale. Not, don't you dare come back to me, but return to me. How kind of God, how amazingly gracious. Return to me and I will return to you. Well, that's the statement. Secondly, we have the question in verse 7. It's the inevitable question. If you've been coming, you'll have spotted the pattern. It's a pattern that goes through the whole book. God makes a statement, his people ask a question and then the Lord answers their question. Well, we've seen the statement. The question is at the end of verse 7. The people ask, but how are we to return? It's the right question. When God says, return to me, we can't ask a better question. How? But having said that, as I've looked at this this week, I can't make up my mind what this question says about these people. See, are they asking genuinely, honestly, Lord, show us where we've gone wrong and we'll turn back to you? Is that what they're saying? Or is this a question, a further sign of their obduracy? 
Are they really unaware of how they've turned away from the Lord? Do they really not know how disobedient they've been? Have they not been listening these last five weeks? The whole book has shown them how they've turned away from the Lord. I don't know what's going on with this question at the end of verse 7, but they ask the question and the way the Lord answers it is a great surprise. And so thirdly, we come to the answer uh, and look at verse 8. See, they said in verse 7, how are we to return? And God says, verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. It's a shock, isn't it? God's people had been stealing from God. And more literally, verse 8 reads, in the tithes and, and the offerings. That is, uh, the tithes and offerings laid down in God's law. Now these people knew the requirements of the law to give the first 10% of all they'd received. 10% of their crops, 10% of their income, 10% of everything they received. They knew that was God's requirement of them and they were giving. But they weren't giving all that they should be giving. And the Lord says, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now I think that word storehouse is crucial here. I've never seen this before until this week and I've looked at this passage several times before. You see, the, the tithe was given to the Levites and the priests for the upkeep of the temple. However, there's no need to look this up, but you can take a little note for it. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, we're told that every third year, the tithes and the offerings were to be put in public storehouses. Notice the word. It's the word there in 3.10. The tithes and the offerings were to be put in public storehouses so that the poor and the aliens, the fatherless and the widows would receive them. So here's the crucial point. They were not only failing to bring in the whole tithe, but by failing to bring in the whole tithe, the most vulnerable in society were being thrown into poverty. And so God says, verse 8, you are robbing me. He says, when you don't give as you should, you rob from me. When you don't give to those in need, you rob from me, says the Lord. The Bible demands that we share our resources with the needy. If you want to consider this biblically, I, I commend to you Tim Keller's latest book, Generous Justice. I'm only through the first four, four chapters, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it and learning much. The Bible demands that we share our resources with the needy. Uh, God has told us ways to bring equality. Now, these people were failing to do that. And because God has revealed himself as the father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, because the Lord cares for the downtrodden, the vulnerable, the poor and the marginalised, when we fail to care for them, we are robbing God. That's what the Lord says in chapter 3, verse 8. You rob me. And so he says, return to me. And the people ask, how are we to return? And the Lord says, verse 10, well, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, he says. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have enough room for it. Now do you see the, the, economic, the conundrum economically here? Economically, these are hard times for God's people. Because of their own disobedience, God has cursed their crops and they have less than ever. They're in recession. 
The boom has gone, the bust has come, and yet in the middle of hard times, the Lord says, give to me. Bring in the whole tithe. That doesn't make sense economically, does it? It's not hard to imagine the scenario. Joseph the Israelite, we'll call him Joe. Joe has fallen on hard times. His crops have been eaten by locusts. His vineyard has produced next to nothing. His little farm shop and wine business has been seriously hit. So he goes to the bank manager for a bit of financial advice. Oh, good morning, Mr. Cousins, or may I call you Joe? Uh, yes, take a seat. Well, I've been looking over your accounts, as you asked me to do, and you're right, things don't look good. You really must cut your cloth a little thinner. Uh, you, you'll need to uh, be a little more careful with your expenditure over these next weeks and months and maybe years. Now, one thing I've noticed in your accounts, you're giving 5% of your income. Now, look, it's very commendable that you give, but... In your rather precarious financial situation, you, you just can't afford to be giving that much. You need to stop your giving, or at least give less. Well, that's wise financial advice, isn't it? That makes sense economically, doesn't it? Especially when there's the very real prospect of a double-dip recession, the way things are going. And so Joe, the Israelite, follows that advice. He, he gives even less. He doesn't bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Well, he wasn't before, but he brings less of the whole tithe. He just gives what he thinks he can afford to give. So he becomes even more disobedient in the area of giving. And, he, and, and that perpetuates this vicious cycle because he fails to give what is due the Lord. So Joe's crops fail and his vines produce less and he cuts back further in his giving to God and next year's crops are hit again and, and it's a vicious cycle. It all begins with disobedience terrible cycle to get into and it can, we can get into it in the Christian life in all sorts of ways when we disobey the Lord in any area of life we inevitably feel further away from the Lord have you noticed that when you do something you shouldn't do he feels distant and so we enjoy him less and we hold back more of ourselves and we're reluctant to give ourselves in serving him and we become selfish and disobey him more. And when we hear him speak to us, we don't feel close to him, so we don't want to serve him, and we know him less. And so it goes on, this vicious cycle of downward, a downward spiral. There is only one way to break the cycle, and that's to obey the Lord. But once you're in that downward cycle, it's very hard to obey him, because he feels so distant. Wonderfully, as we do obey him, we find that we enjoy him and love him and know the blessing of obedience from him. And then, because we enjoy him, the next time we feel him challenging us or encouraging us to do something, we'll do it because we're enjoying him and the result is we enjoy him more and know him more and become more ready to obey him and we get on this wonderful roll with the Lord. It's one way or the other, this downward spiral. And I've seen many Christians on it. They can't get out of it. I've also seen Christians on this crest of a wave. Every time they obey the Lord, they, they enjoy him, they, they'll, they'll obey it, they'll do anything. Anything, Lord, bring it on. Now that's what happens generally in living the Christian life. And what is true generally is true in this very specific area of giving. One more cross-reference, if we may. And it's uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, page 1163. Again, keep your uh, service sheet in, the, in Malachi. And come with me to, to 2 Corinthians 9. 1163 is the page number. Now, as we arrive in 2 Corinthians 9, uh, chapters 8 and 9 are all about giving. 
I need to say, as we, as we are now in the New Testament, there is no mention of a tithe. No, no, nowhere in the New Testament will you tell the, the, the New Testament telling Christians to give 10%. All you get here is give generously. How should we give? Well, we should look at the fact that the Lord gave himself. Communion's a great night to be looking at this. The Lord gave himself and we should give out of thankfulness for that. I happen to think, although it doesn't say this in the Bible, that 10% for the Christian is a starting place. Because if that was the law in the Old Testament, we ought to be far more thankful now we've got Jesus. But that's just my particular thought. The main thing is you give, gen- you give generously and out of response to all that the Lord has given for you. So remember, this is all about giving. And then look at chapter 9 and verse 6, right in the middle of this uh, whole section on giving. Look at verse 6. This spiritual principle. Chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. What Paul is saying here is there's a correlation between giving and sowing seed. Giving money and sowing seed. We tend to think they're very different. Have you noticed that? We think that when we give away money, it's gone. We give it and it's not our money anymore. It's gone. It seems a very different activity to sowing seed. When we sow seed in the ground, we do it in order to see it multiply. Uh, Last year I created a little vegetable patch in our garden. Never done that before. It was great fun. Sowed seed in June. Four months later I reaped a harvest of carrots. They were delicious. And as I sowed the seed, I was expecting to benefit. My sowing produced more. I sowed in order to see growth. I wouldn't have put the seed in the ground if I didn't think something was going to pop up. I've never done it before. I was quite surprised when things did pop up, but that's why I did it. It seems very different from giving, but right at the heart of these two chapters on giving, God says giving money is like sowing seed. Verse 6, what you sow you reap. Sow sparingly, give a little bit of money, and you'll reap sparingly. Give sparingly, reluctant, miserly, and you'll reap sparingly. And as a result, you'll sow more sparingly the next time. And you'll reap even more sparsely. And so it goes on. That's what we're seeing in Malachi, isn't it? But sow generously, says Paul in verse 6, and you'll reap generously. Charles Hodge, the 19th century American theologian, wrote this, giving is to the natural eye the way to lessen our store, not increase it. The Bible says it is the way to increase it, says Hodge. Now allow me to speak autobiographically for a moment, if I may. We do find this whole giving thing very difficult to talk about, don't we, for some reason. Let me say, I still have much to learn about the grace of giving. I've been challenged by this and by all that's been going on over these last weeks at church when we've been thinking about our giving. But I can testify to this in my own life. I don't stand here as somebody who's got it right, but I can testify to this in my own life. The more money I give, the more I seem to be able to give in the future. Now don't misunderstand. It's not that as I give, I always find a huge windfall comes my way. Big uh, checks unexpectedly popping through the post. My my bank balance getting bigger. But, But strangely, that's not what happens, but strangely as I give, I seem to have more to give. Sometimes I want to say I do get more and so I can give more away. In the last few weeks, two friends of mine, they don't know each other but they're both friends of mine, they both independently told me that they have given, as they have given more away, as they felt the Lord prompting them to give more, 
They've received unexpected checks in the post. It's a lovely blessing. That's not the promise here. But at times that does happen, and it's happened to me, wonderfully. Other times, as I give, it seems to free me from this great love of money. And what happens is I find that I don't don't want as much. I don't feel the need for things that seem to be important before. And so whether I actually have more or not, I seem to be able to give more. I seem to have more to give. Now again, let me reiterate, this is not a promise that if we give we'll become rich. And look, anyway, uh, when we give with the right motive, we'll not care if we get more or not because we're not giving to get. But if the Lord does then bless us with more, we'll, we'll be pleased to give it away, almost as if we've shown ourselves that we can be trusted with more. I think that's what's going on in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will reap generously. It seems to be the opposite of the way the world works. And that seems to be something of what's going on in Malachi chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 as we go back to these verses. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 again. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty, and then all nations will call you blessed. Sow generously and you'll have more to give. Continue to sow sparingly, continue to hold back, fail to give the whole tithe and you'll reap sparingly. And you see what the Lord says there in verse 10? Put me to the test. Put me to the test. Try this out. You see, there is only one way you can know the truth of this, and that is to try it out for yourselves. And so the Lord says, test me in this. Trust me. And let me say, you can trust God in this. He loves you. We've seen it throughout this little book of Malachi. The first words of this book, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord says, I love you. It's how he starts the book. I've loved you in the past. I'll love you in the future. I love you now. You can can test me. You can trust me because I love you. And we see that love supremely at the cross this evening. As we take communion, we see there God's love. He loves us enough to send his own dear son for us. He loves us. He wants the best for his children. We can trust him. And so he says to to us, test me in this. But there's only one way you'll know whether he can be trusted and that's if you jump in and give generously. I was on holiday this year. It was a baking summer's summer's day. We had wonderful weather. It was rather fortunate. Uh, My friend who was on holiday with said, come into the sea, it's lovely. It's cool, it's refreshing, it's perfect. I'm a wimp. I said, no, it's far too cold. He said, it's lovely. And then he continued to describe it to me to try and persuade me to get in. And the words themselves that he used, they sounded great. They, they didn't actually give me the experience, but he was, he was egging me on. Sounded good, but there's only one way I'd ever know whether it was really lovely in that sea or not. And I ran into the sea. Then I knew, I experienced what he'd been describing and it was lovely. A bit chilly at first, but it was lovely. It was just as he said. He could have, see, I could have sat there listening to him explaining it all night long and I wouldn't have actually known. I had to put him to the test. That's what the Lord is saying here. Verse 10, test me in this and see if I don't throw open the floodgates of heaven. What joy would be ours if we jumped in on this one? 
If we did put the Lord to the test, if we gave him what was his, what joy we'd know. By contrast, what blessing we miss out on as we hold on to things for ourselves. Because they're mine. Look, as we close, let's turn uh, back to 2 Corinthians 8. Again, page 1163. 2 Corinthians 8, and, um, and this time, chapter 8, verse 15, I'll read from verse 13. Here again is Paul encouraging people to give, to uh, look after those who don't have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there'll be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now verse 15 there is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 16 and I want to read directly from this book, Generous Justice by Tim Keller. He says this on this verse. In the desert God provided the material needs of his people with manna that appeared in the mornings and that had to be gathered. Even though some were more able gatherers of manna than others, all manna was distributed equitably so that no one received too much or too little for their needs. Any manna that was hoarded simply spoiled. It became rancid and full of maggots. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 15, Paul interprets this as an abiding principle for how we're to deal with God's material provision for us. He likens our money to manna. Paul teaches that the money we have is a gift of God as manna was a gift to the Israelites in the desert. Though some are more able gatherers, that is, some are better at making money than others, the money you earn is a gift of God. Therefore, the money you make must be shared to build up the community. So wealthier believers must share with poorer ones, not only within a congregation, but across congregations and borders. And then Keller writes this. To extend the metaphor, money that is hoarded for oneself rots the soul. Money that is hoarded for oneself rots the soul. It's a terrifying thought as we hoard money, as we increase our bank balances, as we invest in our own personal estates, others go wanting and we are robbing God and our souls are rotting. That is the devastating effect of materialism of wanting to get richer and richer. It rots our soul because our soul flourishes as we trust God. But money hoarded for self is in direct opposition to God. Jesus said, no one, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus did not say it is very hard to serve both God and money. He did not say you're going to have to watch it when you've got a lot of money. He said you cannot serve both God and money. You see, those who hoard money have made money their God, thinking that it gives them security. We can find that in God alone and these economic times should have told us that. 
Those who hoard money have made money their God, thinking that money will give them happiness and joy, which we can find in God alone. And just look at all the miserable millionaires, and that'll tell you that's the case. Those who hoard money have made money their God, thinking that money can give them freedom. But money doesn't give you freedom. God alone can give you freedom. Money just sort of makes you its slave. When we make money our God, we know less and less of the blessings that can come only from the Lord. And so the Lord says to us this evening, return to me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Test me in this. See if I'll not throw open the the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing on you. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. Well, let us pray now. And let's have a moment of silence as we make our own response to God. As I've been preparing this week, I've found that again, I need to think long and hard. I need to think long and hard with my wife about our finances. And I'm guessing that many of you will have felt the Lord has been speaking to you too. So a moment of silence for you to make your own response to the Lord. Maybe it's simply saying that you want to deal with him seriously on this, but you might not yet know how. And then after a moment of silence, uh, Ben uh, will lead us in our prayers.